0: Welcome back to 8079 Year of Vesuvius episode 5 A Day at the Races Between the Palatine and Aventine hill lies a long and fairly wide flat valley now the site of the Circus Maximus There are other flat areas among Rome's hills but this particular area is unique in having a parallel slope from which one can gaze down on the so-called Vallis Murcia This is the dividing line between the partisans of Romulus and Remus, Romulus on the northern Palatine, Remus the southern Aventine. By 8079, the Palatine was decidedly the higher rent district. The Long Plain itself reaches as far west as the Tiber River and is prone to flooding, but when the mud and the sand dried out, it was a good spot for a horse race. The practice seems to have gone back to earliest days, and, given the attraction of the sport, It wasn't long before the earthy slopes were outmoded by proper man-made seating closer to the action. We think of Rome as a city of stone, largely because of what has survived, but there was a good deal of wood involved as well. In the case of the Circus Maximus, the king Tarquinius Priscus, 616-579 BC, built wooden bleachers for the toffs. His grandson, Tarquinius Superbus, another set for the pearls. The structures had a life, of course, and there have been various iterations over the centuries. Stone cladding on heavy wooden superstructures. There was always the risk of fire. How so? Well, consider sports stadiums of today. Seats on the inside, space underneath suitable for small business owners, fast food for the punters, or perhaps something more substantial that didn't depend on a race day crowd. Souvenirs of the show? That's not a joke, by the way. Small trinkets turn up from time to time. Small terracotta figures of a charioteer, say, or a gladiator, or a mime, or a comic actor. Pressed glass goblets or terracotta lamps with impressions of charioteers or gladiators on them. For the morbid, there are occasional chariot crashes. The shop's selling this stuff, often in winter, The games for Augustus were in January, and it was a January game that saw Caligula murdered. If that sounds odd, think about American football games held in outdoor stadiums in the snow. So, a fire in 31 BC destroyed most of it under Augustus. He ordered a shrine to be placed in the repaired parts just to be on the safe side. It didn't work. The great fire of 8064 under Nero also began in one of those fast food shops beneath the seats. You can see how it would have happened. Imagine a souvenir salesman on a cold winter's day, his small toy chariot or gladiator helmet on the table in front of him while he was sitting and shivering or standing and slapping his arms, tossing the occasional log on the iron brazier off to the side. The man in the stall next to him selling hot food him too relying on burning coals to keep the fast food, and himself, hot. A sudden gust of wind coming down the street causes a fabric panel to flutter, perhaps kicks up some sparks, or someone knocking the brazier against a nearby wooden pillar already heated by the brazier's nearness. And soon enough, this small accident gets out of hand. The artificial forest of dead wood feeds the flame in a world lit and heated only by fire. You have to be careful. Anyway, they had built. They always rebuilt. The circus was perfect for races, but it served more than that. As of early eighty seventy nine the Colosseum was not quite complete. Another episode will cover that extraordinary building. And the sort of entertainment we associate with the smaller venue went on here. That is to say, gladiators, mimes, clowns, criminal executions, and, once the entire area could be fenced in safely, wild animal hunting. Julius Caesar, in his bid to win the love of the mob, extended the racetrack's length, but he also had a 10-by-10-foot ditch dug between the spectators and the action, which ditch was designed to hold water. Partially this was to facilitate drainage when the river backed up, but it was also a safety measure for the staged wild animal hunts. Large cats, like their smaller cousins, can make extraordinary jumps. As to the races, the course itself, the straightaway that is, measures 621 meters, about half a mile. That's about the same distance you find in quarter-horse races today, somewhere between 220 and 870 meters, Good for fast, short, flat out straightaway races of no more than two horses, two riders. Drag races, if you like. Actual chariots with the riders standing upright dealing with a pair of horses. And actually, that does exist as well today, at least on a few tracks here and there. Again, flat out straightaways, quarter mile or so, and the horses are paired teams and the drivers, I suppose you can call them jockeys, do stand upright on modified chariots. The tracks are that quarter mile straight away, the competitors one on one. For whatever reason, this racing variant has not caught on. Then again, motorized drag racing is sort of the kid brother of auto sport, with money measured in millions. By contrast, NASCAR and Formula One is in the billions, which suggests to the imaginative mind that the earliest horse races were something similar to this straightforward and short lasting kind of race. Short, quick, exciting, relatively safe. At some point, however, and it may not have been in Rome, some evil genius came up with the idea that a longer race would be more exciting and realized that putting some kind of barrier in the middle of the raceway would create a very tight oval, forcing the teams to turn after covering a specific minimal distance. Not a terrible idea in and of itself. The so-called spina, or spine, draws out the race proper and allows for some drama as the laggers in the first part of the race have a chance to pull ahead and overtake the leader later in the proceedings. On the downside, this innovation raised the risk level severalfold. Now we have a race that separates the men from the boys, the sheep from the goats, the lions from the lambs. Think of it from the point of view of the man at the wheels. In a drag race, you have only to worry about staying in your lane. If the lanes disappear as soon as the race begins, then you and your competitors are jockeying for position. Theoretically, you want the inside tracks so you'll have less territory to cover. But that also means that when you get to the end of the spina, your horse will have a tighter angle in which to turn. Which means, in turn that the outermost horse has to cover a longer distance while turning than the horse on the inside. Close to the spina is difficult. Closer to the outer edge of the stadium gives you an easier turn, probably safer as well, but adds to the overall distance you have to cover in the race. It's a judgment call involving the skill of the charioteer himself, the nature of his individual horses, and he has to decide if it is better to run the shorter overall race by being on the inside or adding some length by taking the long way around. Add to this the blocking and ramming strategies of your competitors, and you can see that there's a problem. Did the spectators appreciate all of this? The poet Ovid has some words for the cautious driver. Ah, miserable me, he has circled the post in a wide curve. What are you doing? The next hug's close to his axle and gains on you. What are you doing, wretch? What he's doing is saving his skin. There's a reason the horse track on Earth is anything other than an oval with wide curves on each end. You can check me on this. I'm not much of a horse race person. There are extremely tight corners in Formula One tracks, and they are dangerous, but the drivers are well padded, and the cars designed for safety, more or less. So and bear in mind that we're talking about teams of horses, from one pair, two pairs, three, even four and five pairs, all controlled, to the extent that such a team could be controlled, by leather reins wrapped tightly around the charioteer's left wrist and waist. His other hand is free to hold a whip, or, in case of collision, the knife in which he could cut himself loose from the reins and not be dragged around the course, hoping, of course, that he would not be trampled by the slower horses behind him. As safety devices go, the system left something to be desired. As to the carts themselves, the pictures suggest something solid and substantial. In reality, they are light and rickety, thin wood, leather, and axle, wheels, not confidence-inspiring. Granted, only 2 or 4 or 6 or 8 horsepower, top speed 40 miles an hour or so, and unlikely to burst into flame, but without any of the safety devices that have kept most modern crashes something other than fatal. So who are the charioteers? Clearly not men faint of heart, for starters. Let's start with the amateurs, the ancient equivalent of modern gentleman racers, men in it for sheer fun and excitement, to impress their friends and pick up women. There are some surprising instances of this, considered the likes of Caligula and Nero. We tend to picture these two as a feat, either too thin or too fat, given to plucking lyres and singing naughty songs and soft cushions, or dressing up in gossamer fabric and prancing about in a most undignified manner, or fiddling while Rome burns. There was that side to them, at least according to sources. But especially as younger men, they were serious athletes. They craved the thrill of speed. Caligula, as an adolescent, liked to hot rod around the island of Capri, along with his companion in fun, the future Emperor Vitellius. Vitellius crashed at one point and had a limp for the rest of his life because of it, but did not lose his taste for the sport. Refer back to episode 3 for more on him. Nero famously engaged in actual races, well, okay, staged races, where he was guaranteed to win. Again, refer back to episode 3. But there were races all the same, and he did take his share of knocks, falling off one chariot at least. In later decades, as Roman emperors devolved yet further and imperial dignity turned into farce we find the adolescent emperor Elagabalus, AD 204-222, who also enjoyed a good chariot run. In his case, however, he substituted horses with naked women. One immediately assumes that Caligula would have done the same if he had only thought of it first. The emperors, or emperors-in-waiting, could get away with this sort of thing, as other respectable men could not. Charioteers were infames the same social level as actors and prostitutes, unworthy of citizenship and proper burial. And yet, with the curious double standard that mankind is heir to, the charioteers were lionized by the crowds and able to hobnob with some of the elite. And the most successful would keep up the career for years. Grave markers give detailed statistics of the most successful men, With numbers of races won, placed, or shown, the winnings could, over time, pile up to the millions of sesterces. Then, as now, no driver drove alone. He had support staff on and off the track. The teams were bankrolled by rich enthusiasts and differentiated by color. White, red, blue, and green teams, or factions, each with a history and a reputation, White was the Bush League, perennial losers, or at best, underdogs, a team for would-be champions to start their careers. If successful with the Whites, the charioteer was perfectly capable of dumping the ones that brought them and joining the more prestigious teams. Greens were usually the Emperor's favorite. Caligula was so passionately devoted to that color that he dined with the team members and spent the night in the stable before the races, and in one of his parties with them he gave the driver Eutychus two million sesterces and gifts. He used to send his soldiers on the day before the games and order silence in the neighborhood to prevent the horse Incitatus from being disturbed. Beside a stall of marble, a manger of ivory, purple blankets, and a collar of precious stones, he even gave his horse a house a household of slaves and furniture, so he could entertain the guests invited in his name more elegantly. It was also said that he planned to make him a consul. Kligia's one-time racing partner, the Emperor Vitellius, threw his favor to the blues and had several spectators executed for shouting out rude comments about his team. If the teams were underwritten by one group of generous Romans, the games themselves were sponsored by others. Men elected to the praetorship of a given year were expected to finance the prizes as a gift to the citizenry at large. Nero's father scandalized Rome by refusing to pay out when it was his term as praetor to host a set of games. Each color could field up to three rigs per race, and much like Formula One, there was the designated leader and the secondary blocker. The whole thing became very involved. The crowds were rabid and loyal, and large and loud. Juvenal, writing not long after 879, said he could tell who was winning by the sound of the stadium. All of Rome is in the circus today. The roar that assails my eardrums means I'm pretty sure that the Greens have won. Otherwise, you'd see such gloomy faces, such sheer astonishment, as greeted the Canine disaster against Hannibal in 216 BC. Fans tried to help their teams in whatever little ways they could. Archaeologists have found lead curse tablets invoking evil spirits to hobble the team the possessor wanted to lose. Strictly illegal, of course, but when has that ever stopped anyone? Personal devotion could go a little far. When the much loved charioteer Felix died in a crash, one of his distraught fans threw himself on the funeral pyre. By the way, that funeral for Felix belies the notion that Roman race fans, any more than modern race fans, are just hankering for an exciting, preferably fatal crash to make their day. Some few, perhaps, but the thrill here is to see a man beating the odds, putting himself directly in harm's way, and at the end of the day, walking away. The same applies to bullfights. No one wants to see someone get gored. If you want to get philosophical, you can consider the race as a dual competition for control, one against other teams, one against the horses themselves. In that sense, anyone who crosses the finish line alive, or even just survives the race at all, is a winner, able to race another day. Paul Fussell has similar comments on the Indianapolis 500. See his book, Thank God for the Atom Bomb. Of course, then as now, this kind of entertainment is not to everyone's taste. Juvenile again. The races are fine for young men. They can cheer their fancy and bet at long odds and sit with their smart little girlfriend. But I'd rather let my wrinkled old skin soak up this mild spring sunshine than sweat all day in a toga. Pliny the Younger, nephew of Pliny the Elder, who will figure largely in later episodes, has more to say. The races were on a type of spectacle which has never had the slightest attraction for me. I can find nothing new or different in them. Once seen is enough, so it surprises me all the more that so many thousands of adult men should have such a childish passion for watching galloping horses and drivers standing in chariots over and over again. If they were attracted to the speed of the horses or the driver's skill, one could account for it but in fact it is the racing colors that they really support and care about, such is the popularity and importance of a worthless shirt. When I think how this futile, tedious, monotonous business can keep them sitting endlessly in their seats, I take pleasure in the fact that their pleasure is not mine, and I have been very glad to fill my idle hours with literary work during these days which others have wasted in the idlest of occupations. Pliny was something of a snob. He's also a bit of a hypocrite. The two qualities often go together. In that private letter, he sneers at the rubes. In a public statement, praising the emperor Trajan, he goes on about how fitting it was for the emperor to sit in those stands, sharing a pleasure in the races along with the rabble. The poet Ovid, no snob, just fun-loving, was not particularly interested in the races either, except that they gave rues like him an opportunity to put the moves on women. Sit next your lady, none will prevent you. Sit side by side as close as you can, and that is easy, for the rose compel closeness. If she is unwilling, and by the rule of the place you must touch your comrade, and that is easy, for the rose compel closeness, if she be unwilling, and by the rules the place you must touch your comrade. Here seek an opening for friendly talk, and begin with words that all may hear. Mind you are zealous in asking whose horses are entering, and quick, whomsoever she favors, be sure to favor also. But when the long procession of competing youth pass by, applaud Queen Venus with favoring hand, and if, perchance, as will happen, a speck of dust falls on your lady's lap. Flick it off with your fingers. And if none falls, then flick off none. Let any pretext serve to show your attentiveness. If her cloak hangs low and trails on the ground, gathered up and lifted carefully from the defiling earth. Straight away a reward for your service, with the girl's permission, your eyes will catch a glimpse of her ankles. Smooth operator, our boy Ovid. No wonder Augustus exiled him to the Black Sea. Morals charges. The details are lost. So much for the anti-fans and lame opportunists. Can we hear anything from an actual fan? Yes, as it happens, we do have an extended contemporary description of a race. Well, 5th century, but close enough. The details ring true. The author is Sidonius Apollinaris, Christian bishop and saint, writing to his friend Consentius of Narbonne, describing, among other things, a competition involving his friend. Sidonius was a poet as well as a letter writer, and we have a good deal of his work. Versatile, Sidonius was. In another age, he could have been a sports reporter. He writes... Brightly gleam the colors, white and blue, green and red, your several badges. Servants' hands hold mouth and reins, and with knotted cords force the twisted manes to hide themselves. And all the while they incite the steeds, eagerly cheering them with encouraging pats and instilling a rapturous frenzy. There behind the barriers chafe those beasts, passing against the fastenings, while a vapory blast comes forth between the wooden bars And even before the race, the field they have not yet entered is filled with their panting breath. They push, they bustle, they drag, they struggle, they rage, they jump, they fear, and are feared. Never are their feet still, but restlessly they lash the hardened to timber. At last the herald with loud trumpet calls forth the impatient team and launches the fleet chariots into the field. The swoop of forked lightning... The arrow sped by Scythian string, the trail of the swiftly falling star, the leaden hurricane of bullets whirled from Balearic slings, has never so rapidly split the airy paths of the sky. The ground gives way under the wheels, and the air is smirched with the dust that rises in their track. The drivers, while they held the reins, ply the lash. Now they stretch forward over the chariots with stooping breasts, and so they sweep along, Striking the horses' withers and leaving their backs untouched. Now, as if flying out of sight on wings, you had traversed the more open part. Now, as if flying out of sight on wings, you had traversed the more open part, and you were hemmed in by the space that is cramped by craft, amid which the central barrier has extended. This l- amid which the central barrier has extended its long, low, double-walled structure. When the forest. When the farther turning-post freed you all from restraint once more, your partner went ahead of the two others who had passed you. So then, according to the law of the circling course, you had to take the fourth track. The drivers in the middle were intent if that haply the first man, embarrassed by a dash of his steed too much to the right, should leave a space open to the left by heading for the surrounding seats, he should have be the drivers in the middle were intent that, if haply the first man embarrassed by a dash of his steeds too much to the right, should leave a space open on the left by heading for the surrounding seats, he should be passed by a chariot driven in on the near side. As for you, bending double with the very force of the effort, you keep a tight rein on your team and with consummate skill, wisely reserve them for the seventh lap. The others are busy with hand and voice and everywhere the sweat of drivers and flying steeds falls in drops in the field. The hoarse roar from applauding partisans stirs the heart in the contestants. Both horses and men are warmed by the race and chilled by fear. Thus they go once round, then a second time. Thus goes the third lap, thus the fourth. But in the fifth turned the foremost man, unable to bear the pressure of his pursuers, swerved his car aside, for he had found, as he gave command to his fleet team, That their strength was exhausted. Now the return half of the sixth course was completed, and the crowd was already clamoring for the award of the prizes. Your adversaries, with no fear of any effort from you, were scouring the track in front with never a care, when suddenly you tautened the curb altogether, tautened your chest, planted your feet firmly in front, and chafed the mouth of your swift steeds as fiercely as if it was the want of that famed charioteer of old when he swept Oenemius along with him and all Pisa trembled. Hereupon one of the others, clinging to the shortest route round the turning post, was hustled by you, and his team, carried away beyond control by their onward rush, could no more be wheeled round in a harmonious course. As you saw him pass before you in disorder, you got ahead of him by remaining where you were, cunningly reining up. The other adversary exulting in the public plaudits ran too far to the right close to the spectators then he turned a slant and all too late after long indifference urged his horse with a whip you sped straight away past your swerving rival then the enemy in reckless haste overtook you and fondly thinking that the first man had already gone ahead shamelessly made for your wheel with a sidelong dash his horses were brought down A multitude of intruding legs entered the wheels, and the twelve spokes were crowded, until the crackle came from those crammed spaces, and the revolving rim shattered the entangled feet. Then he, a fifth victim, flung from his chariot, which fell upon him, caused a mountain of manifold havoc, and blood disfigured his prostrate bow. Thereupon arose a riot of renewed shouting, such as neither like Lycaeus with its cypresses ever raises, nor the forests of Osa, troubled though they be by many a hurricane. Such echoing roar as not even the Sicilian sea, rolled onwards in billows by the south wind, gives forth, nor Propontus, whose wild deeps are a rampart to the Bosphorus. Next the just emperor ordered silken ribbons to be added to the victor's palms, and crowns to the necklets of gold, and true merit to have its reward, while to the vanquished in their sore disgrace he bade rugs of many-colored hair to be awarded. Good times! And, like all good times, eventually they were over. Sidonius's sainthood notwithstanding, Christian Rome had little patience with the spectacle, and the last recorded race came in 549 A.D. And then... And then, like so much of Rome, the building was dismantled by medieval and Renaissance Romans who saw ancient structures as stone quarries to be plundered at will and repurposed to modern houses and churches and palazzi. Hard to argue with them. There are some Renaissance sketches of the remains at that time, giving an idea of the porticos. Since then, Backwash from the flooding Tiber and the natural habit of dirt to cover anything that is not immediately swept clean has brought the arena back to its natural setting. Much of the structure is still there, several feet down. Archaeologists did an exploratory trench in recent years, confirming that, yes, indeed, there are still seats available. The trench has been refilled. The sheer size of the stadium makes any kind of full excavation too expensive to be seriously considered just now. Add to that the challenges of upkeep, all archaeology involves some destruction, and you can see why letting it sit unmolested is a reasonable decision. Anyway, in its current form, it makes for a nice place to stroll on a spring's day, or a setting for a summer night concert. Next time... February, and some discussion on Roman wine. Until then, thank you for listening.